Welcome to First Responder Friday, the podcast. Yes, we are now a full-on podcast. You can listen to this show on iTunes and on any place you get podcasts. So if you uh, like to listen to a show instead of watching it live like this on Facebook or YouTube, uh, you can check it out now on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Stitcher, on Google. I think it's even on Amazon, so all these different places. And if you want to check it out directly on the podcast page, you can go to our website, firstresponderfriday.podbean.com. You can check out all the shows there. So all the shows are on there, and you can you can check them all out. You can read the bios of our guests and all that fun stuff. So, uh, yeah, we decided to take our video and take the audio and put it over onto a podcast show. So check it out, like it. And if you would, be so kind as to go there and to give us a review, whether it's a one star, hopefully they're all five stars. Uh, give us a review. Let us know what you think about the show. And that would be big, especially if you go to Apple Podcasts. That would be awesome if you would help us along with that. So in just a little bit, we're going to have uh, we're going to introduce my special guest today. But I also want to make a special announcement. As you know, I'm the producer and director of a documentary film called PTSD 911. And uh, last week, I made a little teaser that we're going to make a big announcement this week. And we do have a big announcement, and, and some of you may have already seen it. So we now have a fiscal sponsor. Now, what that means is this uh, 501c3 nonprofit called the Film Collaborative has partnered with us, and they are representing us at, with their organization in order for us to raise funds for the film. So organizations and companies and individuals who want to write big checks can get a tax benefit from that. And so if you are so inclined or if you are part of an organization that want to sponsor or support this film, reach out to me directly. You can you can email me at conrad at conjostudios.com and learn more about that. Or you can go to the Film Collaborative's website, thefilmcollaborative.org, and just look for PTSD 911, and you can check it out there and uh, make a donation if you want. In fact, just as soon as we had posted this uh, live, we had a donation. Somebody went on there and gave us $2,500 toward the, our project, and so they get a receipt for that and a tax benefit. So if you are so inclined to do that to help us out, we'd greatly appreciate it. But today, we are here on First Responder Friday, the podcast, and we have a very special guest. With me today, from his home in California, is Michael Sugru. Michael, welcome to First Responder Friday. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Michael has a quite an accomplished career. He started his career in law enforcement in the Air Force, and did a various stints there in the U.S. and around the world. And then from there, he was hired by the Walnut Creek Police Department. And Walnut Creek is what? It's a, it's a suburb of? It's outside San Francisco. It's about 30 minutes outside San Francisco in Northern California. Gotcha. So you spent a number of years there. And in 2014, you received a Distinguished Service Medal for your heroic and life-saving actions doing a fatal officer-involved shooting back in 2012. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. But he's also, uh, he retired medically in 2018, and he's now a peer volunteer with the West Coast Trauma Retreat and the ambassador for Save a Warrior. Michael, it's so good to have you on the show. We've talked uh, off and on over the past couple of months. Uh, I just, you know, learn more and more about what you are doing uh, in your, your post-career career. And uh, you're helping a lot of people out there. And you know, first of all, from me as a civilian, I want to say thank you for your service. Thank you for the service to our country and to your community. Uh, what got you involved or interested in law enforcement? Actually, I owe it all to my stepfather. Uh, he came into my life at a very early age, and he had a career in law enforcement. He actually started in Sausalito PD and eventually worked his way up to be a lieutenant at Richmond PD. And actually, at the age of, I believe, eight years old, I started out as a crime prevention volunteer for the Sausalito Police Department. At eight years old? Eight years old, if you can believe it or not. And um, What does an eight-year-old do? <laughs> well, you know, the big thing every year was we had a big crime prevention parade, uh, but mostly it was just filing papers and sorting things. But just having this ID that said, you know, the police department on it and the camaraderie there, I mean, I, I had the, the drive, the desire ever since then. And it just kind of built and built and built throughout my life. So you kind of knew from an early age what you were going to do. I did. Absolutely. I mean, I planned my whole 
life around what I was going to do and eventual career in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So what was the decision to go into the military as a, as a part of that? I mean, how did you decide to do that? Well, honestly, the Air Force gave me a full scholarship to college, so that was nice. That helped out. And my original plan actually was to go into the military, into law enforcement, security forces, do my minimum of four years, and then get out and go into the FBI. Hmm. And through my career, I actually extended and I stayed in six and a half years uh, in the Air Force and ended up living all over the world. But I realized that federal law enforcement is not as exciting as they portray it to be on real life or on TV. And um, I had some interaction with different federal agencies. And I just really found that my true desire and where I felt I could help the most people was just at the local level. And so I came back to California my last year in the Air Force. And as I was transitioning out, I applied to a bunch of different agencies here in Northern California. Mm-hmm. So how did a law enforcement career in the Air Force prepare you for law enforcement uh in the local community? You know, they're actually honestly quite different. Um, For law enforcement in the Air Force, we have all different aspects of what we actually do. There is the true just basic law enforcement mission, which is like the civilian side where you have dispatchers, you have patrol cars, you respond to 911 calls, you do security checks, um, you go to domestic violence calls in progress, Uh, possibly suicides or suspicious deaths. But there's also the other facet, which is air-based ground defense, anti-terrorism, aircraft security, base security. I did global airfield assessments. So my career in the Air Force, although it was law enforcement, I also did a bunch of other things. And it was much more varied, um, much more broad, Whereas the civilian side, it's much more specialized and you're, you're basically doing the same duties and the same jobs day in and day out. Whereas the Air Force, you know, you may be at your base one month and the next month you're deployed to the Middle East or some other country. Mm-hmm. So when you joined the force there in, is it Walnut Creek? Um, yes. What was the biggest surprise for you as coming, going into more of a civilian uh, law enforcement agency? Well, you know, the military is very rank structured. And, you know, if you tell somebody to do something in the military and you outrank them, they're most likely going to say, yes, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And they're going to do it. And very rarely is that going to be questioned. And so just the simple interaction with people is much different in the military. Like I said, due to that rank structure, um, it's just totally different. Whereas in the civilian side, you have to really take your time and, and get to know the people, talk to the people. Um, there's much more gray area, whereas a lot of areas within the military, they're very black and white. And a lot of times there is no discretion. So although similar, they are very different. And it did take some adjustment for me. Um, and of course, the police academy helps with that, the field training program. But there was definitely some adjustment transitioning from the Air Force to the civilian side. Mm-hmm. So did you start in patrol? I did. Mm-hmm. And what was that like in there in Walnut Creek? Um, you know, generally during the day, it's it's mostly people that are commuting to work or, you know, businesses. Um, there's a lot of homeless issues. It's like auto burglaries, um, a lot of thefts, a lot of frauds in progress. That's the day shift. But the majority of my shift, I worked what's called the graveyard shift. Mm. And that's really what I liked. That's where my calling was. That was more in progress calls, um, things that are actually happening as the 911 caller is getting the call. Uh, For me, I was very proactive and I focused on doing a lot of enforcement, uh, whether it be vehicle stops, pedestrian stops, bicycle stops. Uh, My whole goal within law enforcement was to eventually work undercover in narcotics and to focus on mid to high level drug dealers. So I focused my patrol time when I wasn't responding to calls to trying to be proactive and stop criminals on the street. Mm-hmm. And what were some of your experiences there that uh, kind of shaped, maybe even shaped who you are today? I mean, that, that's a tough question. I mean, there there's so many experiences. Um, I mean, literally thousands of experiences, some good, but 
honestly, the majority are are bad and they're negative. Uh, most people don't call 911 and don't ask for the police on their best day. Usually it's their worst day when that happens. And so, you know, what first comes to mind, unfortunately, isn't all the positive interactions. What comes to my mind right off the cuff is the suicides, the fatal car accidents, uh, domestic violence calls, child abuse, even just sudden deaths of just people dying of natural causes. We had a lot of those. Um, we did have homicides. Usually it was only one or two a year. Um, but being a medium-sized apartment, when those big events happen, everybody gets involved. And so it's just this constant exposure to just negativity and trauma and turmoil and and people at their worst. And it really absolutely does take a toll. I didn't realize the toll that it took until years later. That was um, going to be my question is, you know, are, and when you're in the middle of it, do you realize it? Are you doing things to mitigate some of those traumas when you're in the middle of it? For me personally, and, and that's what I can speak to is, you know, when you're working, you're operational and you have that mindset where you're going to go in there, you're going to take care of business, you're going to get the job done and you're going to move on to the next call. And you're just constantly going and going and going. So for the most part, those calls at the time, especially early on in my career, they didn't really have an effect that I noticed. It was more a gradual buildup. But then what I also noticed is that when I went through personal things in my own life, it actually made those calls much more intense. I mean, a simple example was like when I had my daughter. Uh, my daughter's 10 years old now, but I can remember when she was first born. And after that, it really made going to calls involving children, especially the death of children, much more personal. I mean, it just truly hit me to the core. Whereas before having my daughter, you know, there was effect, but it definitely wasn't the same effect after having my daughter. And I can go a step further too and say, at the height of what I went through, I went through a divorce. And prior to that, when I would go to domestic violence calls or disturbance calls involving husbands and wives or partners or going through difficult times, again, I went in there, I got the job done. But after going through my experience, it made it that much more personal where I could actually relate and say, you know, I, I was empathetic. I was sympathetic. I could see what these people were going through and, and see it from each side. And it truly made it made a difference. What did your agency do to support you in some of those difficult calls? You know, through throughout my career, things got better and better. Um, our agency did have a peer support team. And those are fellow officers, but they're also dispatchers, records, uh, technicians, people that were trained in peer support that were made available if we needed somebody to talk to. Uh, we did do annual training on peer support. We also had contracted therapists that worked with our agency. And on the really big events, we ended up having critical incident debriefs. And that's where you'd bring everybody involved, including the dispatchers, the community service officers, the police officers. And we would sit in a room with a therapist and go around and discuss the incident and our perspective and how it may or may not have affected us. And so those were good things and they were available, but really the whole key issue was, is what I call the culture and the stigma of either asking for help or sharing your emotions or sharing your feelings. So, you know, the fact is we had these programs, but I didn't feel comfortable using them. I didn't want to talk to these people. I didn't feel comfortable expressing my emotions in front of other people. And I blame that on the culture and not just the culture of my agency, but I think that's the just the, the culture within law enforcement and not just law enforcement, but all first responders for that matter. There was a question that popped up on the screen here that, that uh, Stephen asked if, you know, sometimes is, is there an addiction to violence? Is it that you find yourselves needing or wanting to get into the battle? I don't think there's an addiction to violence. I think there could be an addiction to adrenaline rush. And that's not just referring to violence, but, you know, anytime you're pursuing somebody, you've got your lights and sirens on, anytime you're chasing somebody, or even if you're just getting ready to pull somebody over, 
or you're going to a call, just that anticipation of that adrenaline dump and that excitement. And so I do think that that is addictive and that has an effect. And, and studies have shown that has an absolute biological effect and it can have dire negative consequences on our health. Uh, but to say that there's an addiction to violence, no, I don't think there's an addiction to violence. Mm-hmm. I think there's an addiction to the rush of excitement of the unknown. And, and we're trained and we're almost you know, bred to go into the most dangerous situations and to not show fear and to take charge and take control. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're expected to do. What kind of training did you experience in the academy for dealing with trauma? You know, that was a long time ago. Um, I went through the academy 16 years ago now, and I don't even remember specific training for trauma at that time. Um, We have learning domains here in California, California Post Learning Domains. I'm sure there was a small section on that, but I don't ever remember anybody coming into the police academy and speaking about personal trauma that they experienced on the job or suicide or having somebody that attempted suicide come into the academy. And that's what we need. We need that today. But I do not remember that whatsoever. It's not to say it didn't happen, but also understand that when you're brand new and going through the academy, you know, you want to shoot guns, you want to drive police cars, you want to find drugs. You want to get on the street and you're focused on all the exciting topics on all the exciting issues. And I don't think that, at least for me personally, at that time in my career, I didn't think about dying on duty. I didn't think about trauma. I didn't think about the toll that the job was going to have on my health or on my family, eventually on my marriage. I just never had that in my mindset. And it wasn't a focus of instruction or education during the academy. Hmm. So Samantha wants to know, how did you share what you were going through with your family? How did that, how did you, you know, share that with the people around you who aren't directly involved in law enforcement? Well, I didn't. And that was my whole problem is that I didn't share what I was doing. I didn't share what I was feeling. I actually remember uh, specific times where I was married at the time and I would be out at social gatherings with other people from the police department. And I would run into a buddy from work and we would start talking about a call or an incident. And my wife at the time would overhear it. And she got really upset because she's like, you never told me about that. I never heard about that. And that was one of the biggest mistakes that I made personally in my personal life was that I didn't talk about the job. I didn't talk about how it was affecting me. You know, when I came in that door, I was typically exhausted I was tired. I was in a bad mood. And it wasn't because of my family. It was because of the things that I had seen at work, but I didn't have the energy or the desire to even want to discuss it anymore. I just kind of wanted it to disappear and go away, kind of like it was a bad dream or a bad nightmare. And so if anybody's watching this or listening to this, learn from my mistakes. You need to talk about this stuff. I'm not saying you need to share every gritty detail with your family members, But if you're having a bad day and you come home in a bad mood, explain why. I mean, it could be as simple as, you know what? I went to a a bad child call today and it it was really tough. And I'm just, I'm not feeling really well right now. And I just need a little time to decompress. But you've got to communicate these things. It's going to save your relationships. It's going to save your career. It's going to ultimately save your life. Hmm. So so tell me what happened on... Uh, in 2012? At the end of 2012, I was a brand new patrol sergeant. I had just gotten promoted and I was literally on my second solo shift as a sergeant. Uh, The shift started the day after Christmas, 2012. It was a graveyard shift. Um, I remember it was very quiet, very uneventful, normally as shifts around Christmas and right after are. There was a swing shift team on duty. They went home. And I was the only supervisor on duty, and I had four officers that were working. We were literally about four and a half hours away from going off duty and being off for a few days. And a little bit after 3 a.m., a a frantic call comes out, and the 911 dispatcher puts it out that there's a woman inside a condo, and there's a subject armed with a knife. 
literally we got there as soon as we could as soon as i got there my partner arrived on scene right behind me we heard blood curling screams coming from a distance it was to this day the worst sound i've ever heard and it sounded like a woman was either being killed or dying as i'm getting out of my patrol car the dispatcher starts screaming there's a struggle there's a struggle and she says the phone line went dead and so now we've lost all communication with the people inside my partner and i just run as fast as we can towards these screams. We don't know exactly where this unit is, but we can hear the screams. We eventually get there and it just goes dead silent. It goes from these horrific screams to just eerie silence where we don't hear any noises whatsoever. We announce ourselves. Nobody comes to the door. I try to force open the door. It doesn't work. We notice there's a huge glass window the size of a door that's shattered inside this condo. It's a two-story condo with units on both sides. Again, we announce ourselves, and there's more officers coming, but we've got to get inside. And so my partner and I, we go inside. We clear the downstairs. We don't see anybody. We don't see anything unusual. We get to the bottom of the stairs. Again, announcing ourselves. We've got our guns out. No noises whatsoever. Eventually, this male subject comes out from the top of the stairs. Initially, we can only see part of his body. His eyes are just wide open. He's sweating profusely. I mean, the best way to describe it was he looked like a zombie. And he was just staring straight through us. He had no visible reaction whatsoever to the commands we were giving. No body movement, no facial expressions, no eye movement that we could see. Moments later, we noticed he had a large butcher knife in his right hand. A short time later, again, we're given the commands, drop the knife, drop the knife. No reaction whatsoever. He then takes the knife up over his head in a stabbing motion and comes towards us. At this time, there's two other officers in the condo. Three of us fire our duty weapons. Another tries to use his taser. The subject comes down the stairs. At this point, we don't know if he's been hit. I don't see any injuries. Two of the officers retreat to another room. The male officer that tried to tase him is right next to me. He pulls out his gun. And literally, this subject is now at the bottom of the stairs. And he still has this knife clenched in his hand, this large butcher knife. And we're giving commands, drop the knife, drop the knife. And he again starts to come up with a knife. There's no nice way to say it. My partner and I, we shot our weapons and he was killed instantly. It turns out that this subject had been stabbing through the bedroom door upstairs. And this couple, there was a couple inside the bedroom, a boyfriend and girlfriend. They're literally physically barricading themselves to prevent this subject from coming in and killing them. And I have no doubt that had we not gotten there when we did, they would, they would be killed. And that night forever changed my life. It, it forever changed everything. That was the first time that not only did I almost die, but I almost saw my partners die. What, I mean, how did you deal with that? I mean, when you went home after the end of your shift, what was, what were you thinking? I was so exhausted by the time I got home. We'd been up for hours. There's a whole protocol process you have to be interviewed and that did not take place for several hours and by the time i got home i literally been up for over 24 hours and i was just physically exhausted i was mentally exhausted and i remember i was driven home by another officer thank god because i was in no condition to drive and my daughter at the time was only a little over two years old and i just i wanted to go up to my room and just sleep and just, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to talk about the incident. I just wanted to be by myself and just hope that this thing would go away. And that very first day is when I started my isolation. And that's one of the biggest mistakes that I made is that I didn't talk about it. I didn't deal with it. I just thought it would eventually go away and things would get better. And they didn't. They got drastically worse. Hmm. You want to talk about that? What was, I mean, where'd you end up? We, we immediately got sued. 
by the family and the federal lawsuit drug on for years. Uh, my marriage eventually started falling apart. Um, one thing I, I need to address that's pivotal to, to this is that about five months after my shooting in our county, we had what's called a coroner's inquest. And this is where it's a court proceeding. There's a judge, a full jury. It's open to the public, reporters. Uh, my wife at the time was there. My coworkers, the family members of the subject I killed was there. And this was the first time that I heard the dispatch tapes of this event. And it immediately brought me right back into that night. I, I Tunnel vision. My heart started beating. I started sweating. I literally was like I was right there. I got up on the stand. I testified. And I absolutely broke down <clears throat> like a baby. I started bawling in front of everybody in this courtroom of like 60, 70 people. And as you can imagine, as an Air Force officer, police sergeant, I had never cried like that in front of people in my entire life. And I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. The judge eventually excused me. I left the courtroom for a few minutes to compose myself. We went through the proceedings. The officers did outstanding. A couple weeks later, we ended up getting the finding that we wanted in this hearing. And this is the pivotal moment that forever changed my path that I went down and the decisions I made. I was called into a supervisor's office and I thought for sure I was going to get kudos. I was going to get praise for being a brand new sergeant, was involved in a shooting. We saved lives. We prevailed in this court proceeding. And now, mind you, my agency, we hadn't been involved in a shooting in the entire time I'd been there. I think the last shooting was 12 or 14 years prior to mine. When I got called into that office, that's not what happened. What happened was the genuineness of my emotions got called into question. Hmm. And what I mean by that is it was either said directly or inferred that I was either acting or putting on a show for the jury. Hmm. I can't even describe the feeling that had on me. They were questioning the very essence of my integrity. I was already ashamed and embarrassed of the fact that I had broke down and cried in this full courtroom with 60 or 70 people. And here now I have what I thought was my family, my brotherhood, the people that had my back more than anybody. And they were questioning not only my integrity, but my leadership ability. And at this point, my career, not to brag, but was off the charts I had specialized assignments. I'd been promoted quicker than anybody. I had stars and bars in my eyes. I thought I was going to be chief someday. This moment forever changed me. And at that very moment, instead of asking for help and sticking up for myself, I made a conscious decision that I was never going to show emotion again, that I was going to prove everybody wrong, and I was going to show everybody that this had no effect on me. And that just started an absolute downward spiral. Again, the absolute worst decision I could have ever made. I should have stuck up for myself. I should have had the courage to ask for help. Because of that, I started drinking more, <clears throat> isolating more. I started putting my officer safety at work aside. I got to the point where I didn't care if I died on duty. I wasn't going to kill myself, but if I happened to die on duty, I didn't care. In fact, I was hoping it happened. I'd be remembered as a hero. People would never forget about me. My family would be taken care of. This is the thought process that I had. In our culture, you know, suicide is shameful, but dying on duty is heroic. And there's so many times that I absolutely put my officer safety aside, hoping something happened to me. It wasn't until a tragic event. I ended up going to my federal trial almost four years later. We ended up prevailing, not that there's any winners. But one thing I can tell you is that the person that I killed had an identical twin brother. And he was sitting feet away from me in this courtroom. And for two weeks solid, I had to hear from these crazy expert witnesses 
And I started second guessing myself. I started doubting the decisions I made that fateful night, wondering if there's something I could have done differently to save lives. And we were literally called cold-blooded murderers in this courtroom. And I can't describe the feeling as a police officer, what it feels like to be a defendant in court. I absolutely felt like a criminal and a suspect. And I thought when this trial was over, I thought everything was magically going to get better. I really did. I had to relive this event through depositions and court proceedings. And I thought once this thing was over, things were magically going to get better. This weight was going to be lifted off my shoulders. And it made it 10 times worse. A short time after that, about a month after that, I was on duty and my best friend tried to kill himself when I was on duty. He's a Vietnam veteran. He was a 35-year reserve officer with my department, but more importantly, he was my best friend. And I had no idea he was suffering. I had no idea he had PTSI. I saw him right when they rushed him into emergency surgery. And he had slit both wrists. He had stabbed himself in the torso multiple times. He had OD'd on multiple prescription medications. And I had a brief moment with him before they rushed him to a surgery. And I told him everything was going to be okay. I told him you're going to make it through this. But I have to tell you, honestly, in my heart, I didn't think there was any way he could make it through that. And thank God he is alive today. But he is the one that saved my life. He absolutely saved my life. He is the one that got me the strength and the courage to finally ask for help. What what did it take to finally get you to the point where you said, yes, I'm going to ask for help? Because I think that's an issue that many people in law enforcement and other first responder agencies, they have that barrier that it, it's, it's, it's not cool. It's not, you know, they just don't want to raise their hand and say, I need help. And it, what was that moment for you? I made a conscious decision that I wasn't going to do that to my daughter. After what I saw happened with my best friend, I saw the effect that that had on his family, on his friends, on the effect that it had on me. A month after that, I broke down in a parking lot and cried for two hours on the anniversary of my shooting. And I just simply told myself that my daughter, my life, is more important than the job. You know, through this process, I learned it's a job. I mean, it was a calling for me and it was what I strived to do my entire life. But I, I made a conscious decision at that moment that I was, for the first time, I was going to put my health and my life and my livelihood ahead and above the job. So how did you do that? I made a phone call. I was in a parking lot for two hours, just bawling. I finally got the courage to pick up the phone. I called my watch commander who was on duty. I told him, I said, I need help. I can't come to work. And he was amazing, very supportive. He talked to me for a while. He made some notifications, contacted the therapist who contracts with the department, contacted administration so I didn't have to talk to them. And he, he made a huge difference for me. Again, super supportive. And at that, at that moment, I knew I had made the right decision. Mm -hmm. And then what was that process like? And how long was that process to where you are today to, to, to you become healthy, to become uh, to the point where you can be productive and, and, you know, move forward with your life? It was a long process and it was a lot of work. And honestly, there's a lot of ups and downs. One of the most important things that happened was, is that I was able to find a culturally competent therapist who understands first responders and works with firefighters and police officers and dispatchers and paramedics. And she's been working with them for years. And in fact, she had been through a very traumatic experience herself. And so she got it. She understood it. And she was absolutely pivotal in my recovery. I started seeing her on a weekly basis and she told me about these uh, first responder peer support meetings. And I was totally unaware of these, but these meetings are only open to first responders. They're confidential. They're discussion meetings. 
They're about an hour long and they have them all over the United States and all over California. And I started going to one of those right away. And that's where I realized that I wasn't alone. I met other people, other first responders who were fully open, who shared their personal experiences. And that made a pivotal difference because now I had a group of people that I could trust, I could open up to, I could talk to. And I didn't even have that in my own agency. I literally worked with people for years and years and years and didn't feel comfortable opening up to them. But somehow, here I am, I met these other first responders and I was able to fully open up to them and know that I could trust them completely. What was that like feeling that and after you were you spent time and you shared your story and you opened up was that like a weight lifted off you what what did that feel like it was a huge weight lifted off and in fact every time i speak about it now there's more and more weight lifted off it is absolutely healing to talk about this stuff it's one of the most basic and simplest i don't want to say easy because it wasn't easy for me it's easy now but we can do it and it makes such a difference. But the key is you have to have people that you trust. That's the bottom line. You have to have people that you trust, that you can fully open up to, that you know aren't going to judge you. They're not going to think negatively of you. More importantly, they're going to support you and they're going to love you and they're going to give you the help and advice that you need. It is absolutely healing. Hmm. And and what would you say to that officer that's out there now or that other that other first responder who is where you were? What would you say to them? What should they do? What what can they do? What should their their first step be? The first thing is you're not alone. I thought I was alone. I felt alone. I didn't think there's anybody else that I knew in my agency or outside my agency that was going through what I was going through. And I can tell you, I do volunteer work now with the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat, and that's a program that I went through myself. And I also went through Save a Warrior. And in both these programs, I've made numerous friendships and connections with all first responders and military and veterans who have been through similar and in some cases the exact same situations and so know that you're not alone know that there is help there are numerous confidential hotlines for first responders some only for law enforcement some you can text to Um, there's retreats like i mentioned there's peer support meetings there's eap programs at work for a lot of people there's religious figures, whether that be chaplains or priests or pastors. Um, But you have to talk about this stuff. And I know it's not easy. It wasn't easy for me. And I waited far too long. I waited four years and it almost cost me my life. How does one know that they are meeting with or talking to the right person for them? You know, As first responders in law enforcement, everything we do is off our instinct and our gut. And we're very good at sizing people up, figuring people out. And what it comes down to is what's in your heart, what's in your gut. I knew that when I met with my therapist and, and she opened up to me, and that was key part right there. And this is part of what I'm talking about is that my therapist Right away, she opened up to me about a deep, deep personal experience with her that I was able to relate to. And because she did that, it automatically brought down the walls. And I automatically knew that I could trust her. So if people are watching or listening, whether you're on the side that needs help or you're on the side that wants to help, one of the biggest things that you can do if you're trying to help somebody is to share your own personal experience and just be real, just speak from the heart. And they're going to see that they're going to know that, and they're more likely to open up to you, but you have to have that rapport. You have to have that relationship. And most importantly, you have to have that trust. Hmm. So as you started your healing process, you were still active, active duty at that point, or were you, did you, uh, would you retire by then? So 
I went off duty and I, I made that decision. And my actual agency kind of tried to talk me out of it at first. Um, but I made the conscious decision that I wanted to focus all my energy on my recovery and getting better. And so I officially went off uh, December, end of December 16. And I didn't retire till July of 2018. So I was on the books, but I wasn't working. That entire time, I never went back to work. Um, I was focused on my recovery. And there was a lot of issues, though, that I faced, too, which I haven't discussed with administrative betrayal, uh, the work comp system, and all those things take an absolute toll. My original goal was to go back to work, to go back to the job. And that was my focus. And for months, that was my mindset. And there was a couple key incidents that happened with my administration to where finally it was a breaking point. And finally, I had a higher work comp attorney. And finally, I made a conscious decision that I wasn't going to go back because I couldn't go back. I could no longer do the job. And so I made the decision that I wanted to retire and I was going to retire. But for people watching and listening, I waited too long. If you address these things and work on them as they're happening, I truly believe you can make it through a full career, whether that be 20 years, 30 years, and more importantly, you can live life. But I waited far too long. If you could go back to that last final day in uh, when you were a recruit, when you were in training, when you came out of the academy, and you could speak to yourself at that day, what would you say to yourself? I would say that throughout this this process, be true to yourself and be true to your heart. This job is going to have an effect on you. It's going to take a toll. But remember that you are human. You're not Superman. You're not a superhero. You may be required to do heroic actions and save lives, but you need to save your own life. Take the time, most importantly, for your family, for your loved ones. Don't worry about all the toys and the overtime and the assignments and the promotions. It's a job. It's a career. You can make a difference, but don't lose sight of what's most important. And what's most important is your family. My sole focus today is my daughter. And thank God I went through what I did because it gave me a second chance, a second life with my daughter. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. So bottom line is don't put the career before you or your family or your loved ones. And I think that's important words of wisdom for anyone in I mean, no matter what career you're in, whether you're a filmmaker like myself or a firefighter or a, a police officer. Um, I think if we keep our priorities where they need to be, then we are better off for that. Um, so what what is your focus today? What and, and how do you keep yourself from descending back into some of them, those, those previous habits that brought you down? Well, you know, I'm still working on my recovery, to be honest with you. Um, I'm in a much better place, but, you know, recovery is a continuous process. And so I still go to therapy. I don't go as often. Um, I still go to peer support meetings. I volunteer at the West Coast post-trauma retreat when I can. Um, I just went through the Save a Warrior program and when I'm able to, I plan to volunteer as a shepherd with that program. Um, you know, but most importantly, I, I speak about my personal experience so that people can learn from my mistakes. And so I speak to agencies across the nation, mostly law enforcement. Um, I recently just spoke to the California National Guard in Sacramento. And my whole purpose is to show people that they're not alone that there's people just like them out there. And I'm in a position where I'm able to do this and I'm able to share my story. And so my hopes are that somebody will hear it, somebody will listen to it, and it will help them get that strength and courage to ask for help. Because to this day, that was the most courageous thing I've ever done was raising my hand and asking for help. It wasn't any incident or call I was in in civilian law enforcement or anything I was involved in for that matter in the military. It was me asking for help. 
And so I want to smash the stigma. I want to change the culture. I want to show people that it's okay to talk about this. And more importantly, that you can get better. It's an injury. It's not a disorder. And you can get better. Hmm. So I had a question come through. Speaking of uh, of culture, I had a question come through from Daryl. He says, has the WC a, a PD changed their process or thought process after this experience, after this event? Yes, um, I do know they were involved in another shooting after mine. Um, I believe it was like a year, year and a half ago. And I've spoke to people that were involved in that. And um, it has gotten better and they have made improvements. Um, I don't know all the specifics of those improvements, but I can tell you 100% confidently that they learned from the experience that I went through and my officers went through and they built on that and things have gotten a lot better. Hmm. So uh, there's another, and, and Daryl had a follow-up question. He said, is there anything different with the admin or specifically the administrator that made you feel more guilty? <sighs> Absolutely. And, and when I say this, I'm not speaking about my whole agency. I worked for a phenomenal agency with phenomenal people. And um, it really came down to one person, I'll be honest with you. And obviously, I'm not going to mention them, their rank, their name or anything like that. But it, this came down to one person. And they made a pivotal difference for me. And there was things that happened when I was off trying to get better that absolutely made me feel guilty, um, that absolutely made me feel like I shouldn't be in the career anymore. And that they actually tried to talk me into retiring when I started my recovery process. Not when I made that decision, but when I was of the mindset that I want to come back to work. Mm -hmm. And so it was a huge just betrayal where I thought, here's, you know, my family. And don't get me wrong. The people there are family. There's people in our agencies that are family, but the agency itself is not your family. It's a business. They have a job to do. They need healthy bodies on the street. And if you're off on injury, that means they have an empty seat and they want to fill it. So that's what I was talking about with these ups and downs in the recovery process. Administrative betrayal is a key part of this. If you have a very supportive agency that is there for you, it makes a critical difference. I have a best friend who was recently involved in a shooting and their agency was phenomenal. And he is doing great. He's back at work. I mean, he has a few issues, but nothing like I experienced. I mean, his agency is bent over backwards for him, and they can make the critical difference. What makes the difference? What What does an agency leadership do to, to accomplish that, what you just described? Well, it first off, it's with leadership and having that culture where it's acceptable to ask for help and it's acceptable to, ask, to talk about this stuff. Because if you have that culture, then everybody from the top down and the bottom up they understand it, they get it, they support it, they believe in it more importantly. But it's the actual true caring and taking the time to get to know your people and talk to your people. That's the true difference because if we know our people, we know when something's off. Just like our family members, they know when something's off. They know when something's not right. And as first responders, we often see these, these warning signs and we ignore them. We chalk it off. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to go there. We don't want to bug our partner. We don't want to talk to him. It comes down to the culture and it starts with the top. You create a culture where this is acceptable. It's an injury that can be treated no different than a shoulder injury, a back injury, or a knee injury. And that's how you treat it. That's how you change the culture. So how do we change that from a systemic standpoint. That's one of the goals we have for this for this movie project is to inspire change, to inspire change at agency level. How, how do we do that? Well, it's through education and awareness and doing what you're doing like this, which is showing that this is prevalent, showing that it's normal, showing that it's out there. And again, creating that culture where it's okay to talk about this stuff. Um, I, I went to an agency where I spoke and this agency, and I just want to use the example because I thought it was really good, but I sat down and talked to this chief for almost four hours, very transparent, very open, talked about the culture. And not only did he you know have these policies and procedures, but he talked the talk and walked the walk. Mm 
and so did his administrative. So did his people. Uh, there was a, a training they did. They did apartment-wide training, and there was a lieutenant there who out of the blue, it wasn't planned. He opened up in front of his entire agency and talked about these traumatic incidents he'd been involved in and how they took this personal toll on his life. And he had been through retreats. He'd been through counseling, but nobody knew about it. Nobody had any idea that this lieutenant had been suffering and that he got better. And so he just fully opened up. I mean, to the officers that were there, you know, on their first week of field training to these seasoned veterans. And that's a simple, perfect example how you do it at all levels. You know, if you're a patrol sergeant and you're running lineup, then you do it at lineup when it's when it's appropriate. Maybe the day before the team had a bad call. And so you use that half hour that you normally go over the calls for service that happen when you're off and this other stuff about getting a flu shot and these other things that don't really matter that much. And you talk about, hey, let's today, why don't we focus on that child call that we all went to yesterday? Why don't we talk about that? And as that sergeant, why don't you talk about how it affected you first and open up that discussion, open up that conversation and be real and speak from the heart. That's how you do it. You know, John Maxwell, the leadership guru once said, everything rises and falls on leadership. And I think a leader who leads like this will inspire change in an agency and, and will make a difference for the rank and file to, because you, you follow who you lead, right? I mean, that's what, that's the whole thing, how it works. And so if, if I see you doing and speaking about your, you know, the things that you're feeling, oftentimes we as guys especially aren't really wanting to talk about our feelings, but if I see you doing that, then it, it gives me that permission to do the same, right? Absolutely. Yeah. How did going to some of these retreats, what did that do for you? Like, uh, like, like Save a Warrior and the other one you mentioned, I don't remember the name of it offhand. A West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat. Right. So I went to West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat first. It's about a week-long residential retreat. Uh, this one is only open to first responders. You can be a veteran, but it's you have to be a first responder too. So dispatchers, paramedics, firefighters, uh, police officers. It is uh, peer-driven. There are basically usually six clients that go through, and usually it's a mix of law enforcement and fire or dispatch. And then you have the meat and potatoes, which are the peers like myself, people that have been through the program. Usually there's 20 to sometimes 25 peers, and they've gone through at varying times. Some went 10 years ago. Some went six months ago. You also have chaplains, therapists, and clinicians. Now, all these people volunteer a week at a time. These clinicians and therapists actually close up their private practice and volunteer at this program because that's how much they believe in it. Wow. And it's absolutely amazing. I, I've seen it with myself and I've seen it every time I go back that in a matter of a couple of days, you see grown men and women who are able to share things that they have never shared their entire life oftentimes not even with their own spouses or family members, and they're able to do it in a room full of people. And so you can imagine the power of something like that. And it's literally family, and it's a family that keeps on growing. This program is part educational. It's part therapeutic. Um, they do EMDR. They do therapy sessions. Like I said, a lot of education. And it is just absolutely phenomenal. Another good thing about this program is, is that if you're in peer support, you can actually go through for training as a peer and you can get your California Post Advanced Peer Certificate. Um, they also run another program called SOS, which is the Spouses and Significant Others Program. Same program, a little bit different, but it's open to, just like it says, either the husbands, wives, partners, of the first responders that go through the program. And it's also- That's a very critical aspect of, of that because, I mean, just the people I've talked to over the past you know eight months, that connection, that family connection, that spouse, that family member, they're very much impacted too by the traumas that their, their partner has been to, right? 
Absolutely. I mean, yes. I mean, you hit it, you hit it on the head and they suffer. Um, you know, they get the brunt of our bad days and of what we're experiencing, not to mention the fact that we're working shift work. A lot of times we're missing family events. We're missing holidays. We're getting no sleep. We're getting called out in the middle of the night. Um, it is tough being a partner or a spouse of a first responder. Let's face it. It's, it's one of the toughest things there is. And a lot of times these partners and spouses are raising their families and their children's a lot of times on their own. And it is extremely difficult. So this other program, again, helps educate them on what we're going through. But it also educates them on how to deal with what they're going through. And so it gives a better awareness and understanding on both sides. And so just a remarkable program. And, and the beautiful thing is that if you go through West Coast post-trauma retreat, then your spouse or partner is eligible to go through SOS at no, no cost. Now, there are waiting lists for both programs, um, and especially with these fires, those have been extended. So just understand that there is a wait to get into some of these programs. Um, the other program, Save a Warrior, I just went through that actually in August. And this is um, open to military, active duty, veterans. It's also open to first responders, whether current or former. A little bit bigger of a... Um, group that goes through when I went through, I think there was 12, but it's usually like 10 to 14 cohort members that go through it's peer run, peer driven. This program's a little different in where the primary focus is complex post-traumatic stress. And so what they really try to get to the root of is childhood trauma or things that happen in childhood that affect us later on in life. And what most people don't realize, maybe they do. I didn't realize this is that the majority of first responders, we don't stumble upon this career just by accident. We are called to it and we seek it out. And the reason why is oftentimes we have our own childhood trauma and that could come in a variety of forms. It could be just an emotionally distant parent. It could be an alcoholic or addict parent or parents. It could be physically abused or sexually abused. Um, it could be abandoned. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could happen, but a majority of first responders, and I know they don't want to hear this, have childhood trauma and they just forget about it or they try to put it aside and just move on with their lives. And the ironic thing is that trauma oftentimes makes us very successful as first responders. It makes us good at what we do. And so Save a Warrior focuses on getting to the root of that childhood trauma and they, you know, complex PTS, they say that like this, like your childhood trauma, it's on top of, or this is your work related trauma and this is your childhood trauma. And so you lift this off and they want to get to this mm-hmm. and dealing with that absolutely lets you deal with your trauma on the streets or your trauma on the battlefield. Again, this program is about a week long But here is the amazing thing about this program. There is no cost for people to go through it. Hmm. Zero cost. It is 100% run by donations. The people that run it volunteer their time. All you have to do is physically get yourself to the location. They have one in Simi Valley, Southern California, and the main campus is in Ohio. And they run these every week. And it is an amazing program. I literally was in recovery for two years and I didn't realize it, but this program gave me a missing piece that I wasn't even aware of. And it gave me that last piece that I needed to complete my journey of recovery. And I can't speak highly enough about this program. Um, You should definitely Google both programs, West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat and Save a Warrior. Both are absolutely life-changing, but more importantly, life-saving programs. After we're off air here, uh, uh, I'm off the air here. I'll uh, be sure to link those in the comments so that people can get to them directly. And uh, well, it's been an amazing conversation. I can't believe it's already an hour that we've been sitting here talking. Oh. And uh, Michael, it's been uh, amazing to hear your story and to hear how far you've come and to having you willing to share uh, the kind of the barrier soul to this audience is uh, I want to thank you. Thank you for that. 
and for the work that you do and continue to do to help others. Um, uh, thank you for that as well. I look forward to to actually meeting you in person sometime soon Absolutely. as we start uh, production for this film and uh, end up coming out to California. I, I know we'll be spending some time out there. So I, I very much look forward to meeting you and to, uh, to learning more about you and, and to, uh, you know, sharing your story with the world. And uh, so, so thank you from from my heart to yours. Thank you. Thank you. It's my honor and my pleasure. Yep. Well, you have been watching and listening to First Responder Friday, the podcast. Next week, we're going to be joined here by Tracy Eldridge. Tracy is has an amazing story, and she's worked in public safety for over 25 years and now serves as a public safety community engagement manager at Rapid SOS. She spent many years serving her community in rural Massachusetts and still serves as a firefighter and EMT on her local fire department. And so she is going to be with us next week for First Responder Friday here on the podcast. Be sure to join us again live next Friday at 12 noon Eastern time for this special interview with Tracy Eldridge. And if you have not yet gone to our website and uh, check it out, our, our, uh, our website, please do so. It is PTSD911movie.com. And you can check out more of our shows on First Responder Friday and our podcast now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. So this show today will be made available by Monday. It'll be live on all our audio podcasts. So be sure to check it out there. And if you would be so kind to leave us a review, that would be awesome. It helps us get the word out and helps have more people uh, tune in and to listen to this show. If it's important to you, please leave a review. And I thank you very much. My name is Conrad Weaver. Again, thank you for watching. Thank you for engaging. We had a lot of great comments and questions today in the comments. So thank you for being a part of that. And again, thank you to Michael for joining us today on this podcast. Have a great day. Have a great weekend. And we'll see you again next week.